Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the evidence of your love and your care that surrounds us, especially in this beautiful setting. And Lord, the sunset this evening speaks to us again of how much you love us and long for us to be surrounded by that love in your kingdom. Now, I pray this evening as we open your word together, your Holy Spirit would be present to instruct us, to give us understanding in spiritual things. And we ask and pray it in the name of Jesus for, and for his sake. Amen. Second Peter, chapter 1, verse 12 says, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent, that is in this body, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, for as our Lord Jesus Christ, or just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And he shares his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration where they saw Jesus glorified right before their eyes. But then he says in verse 19, and we have the more sure word of prophecy which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, my, my habit in the morning, I get up in the morning and my wife sleeps a little later than I sleep, so when I get up in the morning, I go out of the bedroom and I go into the living room to study. And it's been my habit to get up, everything is dark, and I walk into the living room and I find the light and I turn it on. And that usually works really well, except for a couple weeks ago when inadvertently, for some reason, there was a laundry basket that was placed right in the pathway, which is no problem when the lights are on, but when you're used to traveling that path in the dark that you know so well, you know, and uh, that's what happened. And I, fortunately, I didn't injure myself too bad, but... That, this, this text, when he says that you would do well to heed this more sure word as a light that shines in a dark place, that, I, can, I relate to that. It's nice to have a light when you're in a dark place, isn't it? Especially when you're talking about spiritual things. You don't want to stumble spiritually. And Peter tells us that more sure than his experience, he says, we've not followed cunningly devised fables, and here's why, because I saw it with my own eyes. But you know what? More sure than our own eyes is the testimony of the Word of God. Amen. The more sure word of prophecy, which you do well to heed, as a light that shines in a dark place. And of every, or any, or every age in this earth's history, of all ages, now's the time more than ever that we need to be anchored in the more sure word of prophecy. And as we're looking at the message tonight, that will become especially important. The message is entitled, The Open and Shut door, the open and shut door, and it's taken from the book of Revelation, and I've got to get my notes back up here, 
Now, we talked this morning about the first angel's message, and there's a lot. There's a lot that I've wanted to share about these messages. One of the challenges, you know, the beauty of the first angel's message in Revelation, and really all the angel's messages, and and, and they're built on, as we've said, Daniel 8, 14, under 2,300 days, which is part of the 70-week prophecy. When you look at that prophecy of the 70 weeks and the 2,300 days, in essence, all those prophecies were doing was pointing Daniel and every believer to the coming Messiah and his ministry. Then you trace it out. It tells us the time of Messiah's baptism, tells us the time of his crucifixion, tells us of his ascension in the gospel going to the Gentiles, and then it tells of his ascension into the second apartment of the heavenly sanctuary to finish his work. It's outlining the work of the Messiah, and ideally the first angel's message would direct the eyes and the attention of God's people to the work that Jesus is doing in behalf of his people. The book Great Controversy tells us this, and we'll look at this a little bit more tomorrow morning. The sanctuary in heaven is the very center of Christ's work in behalf of humanity. It amazes me that people can say that preaching about the sanctuary is Christless when that's the very place he's working. And the fact of the matter is Jesus said repeatedly he would come again. He prayed to his father in John 17, Father, my will is that they whom you've given me would be with me where I am. He told his disciples at the Last Supper, with fervent desire, I desire to eat this Passover with you. I won't eat of the fruit of the vine again, or drink of the fruit of the vine again, rather, until we drink it anew in my kingdom. So all these statements where he's like, I want to be with you, I want to be with you, I want to be with you. And then Christianity says, and it's crept into Adventism far more than it should have, that, oh, well, everything was done at the cross. And it's all done. Well, let me ask you a question. If Jesus wants to be with us so bad and it was all done at the cross, where is he? Why are we waiting? What are we waiting on? Does he want to be with us or does he not want to be with us? And what the three messages do is direct our attention to where he's working now in preparing to come and receive us unto himself. Now, I didn't didn't go into a lot of that this morning because the reality is that wasn't understood in the early Advent movement. They hadn't understood the sanctuary yet. When they heard the hour of his judgment has come, they weren't thinking the heavenly sanctuary. They were thinking Jesus is coming. And what it led them to do was examine their own relationship with Jesus in the light of his coming. And it led them to a deeper experience with him, but with a limited understanding of what he really was doing. But there's some other things that are interesting about that first message. And I want to go to Revelation. We're going to look at messages 1 and 2, Revelation 14. Revelation 14 and verse 6, which brings to view that first angel of the three. And John says, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And do what? Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So you have in this call... And we emphasized this this morning, basically a call back to true, genuine worship of God. I mean, there's no, you're not giving a call to to planet Earth and saying, worship him if everybody is worshiping him. The fact is, those who are claiming to worship him were not worshiping him in spirit and in truth. And so the call goes out, the cry goes out in light of the soon coming of Jesus that's brought to view a couple verses later. And so there's a call to worship God. God. Now, what we looked at last night was how in the prophecy of Daniel, God foretold that the truth would be cast down 
and distorted for that period of 1260 years in the Dark Ages. And at the end of that time, the truth of God was to be restored. Now, I want you to be thinking about that as we look at angel number two here. Verse eight says, and another angel followed. And I talked to you about this earlier, that in the Greek, the way that this term is used, followed, is as accompanying or almost in the sense of a a, a reaction or a consequence. In other words, first angel's message goes, and because of the effect of the preaching of the first angel comes the response and the, and the message of the second angel. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. Another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, I'm not going to go into, there are certain things I'm assuming tonight, and I apologize if you haven't studied these things. Time doesn't permit to go into the detail. It, it, it already has been kind of a challenge with some of these subjects if you haven't studied a lot of prophecy. But in Revelation chapter 17, you have the picture of the woman Babylon. You have the description of the woman Babylon. And in studying the position that we've taken to Seventh-day Adventists, and, and not alone, it's not exclusive to Seventh-day Adventists, is the picture of the woman Babylon in Revelation 17 is a picture of medieval Rome, the Roman church, the church of Rome, not imperial Rome. Woman in prophecy represents a church. Here's a church that the Bible says is rich, increased in goods, drunk with the blood of the saints, has slept around with the kings of the earth. And the picture the Bible gives of the woman Babylon is a church that because she's more interested in the affection of the world than the affection of her husband, Jesus Christ, she's committed adultery with the world, which has, in essence, made her teachings mingled them with worldly philosophy... And now as a church, her teachings are communicated to others in a, a concoction of worldly philosophy and religion that's described as the wine of Babylon. And she makes all nations drunk with it. Further in Revelation 17, it says this woman, Babylon, is a mother of harlots. She has daughters. And we understand the daughters refers to all those churches who have not forsaken the false teachings of the mother. Now that's serious business. Because what the Bible's saying here, now, now this is interesting, and for those who were here last night, and I apologize if you weren't, we looked at how in Daniel 8 it said that the truth was going to be cast down to the ground, but it also said of the Antichrist power that the error was going to be caused deceit. Remember, is the word deceit would prosper, Daniel 8, 25. And we asked how deceit would prosper. How do you, what's deceit? It's a lie. How does a lie prosper? There's only one way. You've got to pass it off as truth, right? Now, when lies are being taught as truth, and I'll ask you, in light of what we've just talked about, what word does the Bible give to the body that proclaims lies as truth at the end of time. Who, who, how does the Bible identify this, this, um, uh, this, this movement that proclaims lies as truth at the end of time? A harlot named Babylon. I mean, that's what Babylon is about. That's what Babylon means. It's identifying a system, a false 
religious system that's teaching error as truth. Now, when you're teaching error as truth, how do you combat that? How would you overthrow a system like that? Truth. With the truth, right? You present the truth, and guess what? Oh, wow. If that's true, then that's a lie, right? Now, I want you to notice the sequence. Angel number one is a clarion call to come back to the worship of the true God who made all things. What you have, in essence, is a proclamation of the truth of God going out with a loud voice throughout the world. And what's the result? Babylon is fallen. It is it, it's a consequence to the preaching of the first angel. As that first angel's message goes, and it calls God's people back to truth, it exposes the fallacy of Babylon. Okay? <clears throat> so... When you're looking at this message, Babylon has fallen, it addresses, number one, the false teachings of Rome. Number two, the false teachings of Protestantism that they've taken and adopted from Rome. The message, Babylon has fallen, also brings to view the fact that there's a truth that has exposed the error. And there's an appeal in that to receive the truth. Now, we don't see it in Revelation 14. We see it in Revelation 18 where you have that final call, come out of her, my people. But the very first angel's message in the call to worship God is saying, hey, get out of the error and come into the truth. Now, I've been sharing with you about this, this book, Early Writings, and, and it's such a powerful little book. I want to share with you uh, what it says in connection with what we're looking at here on page 249. As this scene is viewed with those who are hearing the second angel's message, it says, I saw that these waiting ones were not yet tried as they must be. They'd heard the first message, but there was still something that needed to happen. It says, they were not free from errors. And as I saw the mercy and goodness of God in sending a warning to the people of the earth and repeated messages to lead them to a diligent searching of heart and study of the scriptures. I want you to notice that. The messages were to lead them to a diligent searching of heart and a study of the scriptures. I mentioned that during the, the worship hour, and I want to reemphasize it. There's a lot of things we can talk about theologically, and we can get into all kinds of theological debates, but the biggest question is this. What are you doing with the truth? Not what is everybody else doing. The Apostle Paul says when we compare ourselves among ourselves, that's a foolish thing to do. He says those who do that are not wise. Well, but they're not doing it, or they are doing it. Who cares? If God's calling you to do something, are you doing it? If God's calling you to step up higher, are you stepping up? What's your personal experience with Jesus and what he's telling you to do? You know, one of the questions that bugs me today, or I shouldn't say it's a question. Sometimes it's a question. Sometimes it's a statement. The question goes like this. Is that a salvation issue? Or the statement says, well, I don't think that's a salvation issue. Now, follow along here. Let's just say... I've been married. My wife and I celebrated 27 years this year. Amen. By the grace of God, praise his name. Let's just say as I'm walking out of the house, my wife says to me, honey, hold on, hold on. What, what, what is it? Aren't you going to give me a kiss? Goodbye. And I look at my wife and I say, are you going to divorce me if I don't? <laughs> and she says, well, no. All right, see you later. What does that communicate? What does me even asking the question communicate? Does it make it sound like I really have any pleasure kissing my wife goodbye? Yes or no? No. 
If I'm asking about some point of truth and I'm asking the question, is that a salvation issue? What am I really asking? What am I really advertising? I'm advertising that I find no delight in the service of God and if I don't have to do it, I'm not going to do it. It's a dead giveaway to legalism. And, it, and, and, and the, be the beautiful thing the enemy has done here is he's packaged it to make it look like it's so grace-oriented. But it's not great. Sorry. It's like, do I have to do that? Oh, is that why you do your religious things? Is that why you live your life? You do what you have to do, and you do the bare minimum if God says you don't have to do it. Hey, it doesn't matter. doesn't matter if I have to kiss my wife goodbye or not. I kind of would like to kiss my wife goodbye. It doesn't matter if Jesus says I have to do that to enter into the kingdom. I kind of like serving him. You hear what I'm saying? We need to search our hearts for whether or not we really enjoy serving the Lord and the beauty of it is this if we don't we can just ask him to renew us in his image we can say like David did restore unto me the joy of your salvation these messages were repeated these repeated messages would lead them to a, a diligent searching of heart and study of the scriptures that they might divest themselves of errors which have been handed down from the heathen and papists through these messages, God has been bringing out his people where he can work for them in greater power and where they can keep all his commandments. You have to understand that if we're living in rebellion, God's limited in what he can do. So he's trying to bring his people out where they have an understanding of truth so that as they step out into the truth, God's able to work for them more mightily. And that's what he's doing in these messages. Notice he's trying to call them out in the second angel's message from the errors that have been handed down through that papal darkness and through the heathen superstition that found its way into the church in that time period. Are you with me so far? Listen, folks, for a thousand, for well over a thousand years, you didn't have an op you didn't have a Bible. You didn't have right to a Bible. You didn't have access to a Bible unless you were a priest here or there. And then you had the access in the monasteries if you read it in that language. They weren't in the language of the common people. Now, what did the, what, what did the church members do when they can't read the Bible? they got to go to the priest. And whatever the priest says, that must be the truth. Well, that's kind of scary, isn't it? And that's what happened for over a thousand years. And so all kinds of non-biblical teachings found their way into the church. There was no way to check it. And the reason for that was the church said the laity are too stupid to read the Bible. If they read the Bible, they get it in their own hands. They're going to come up with all kinds of crackpot ideas. We'll interpret it for them. Now, let me just give you a newsflash in case you're not up on this one. The devil's doing it again. He's doing it again. Only this way, this is how it's working today. In those days, you didn't have a Bible. In these days, we have lots of Bibles. But you're, this is what you're told. Oh, well, you're not educated in the Greek and the Hebrew languages. You really don't know. I'm a scholar and you're not a scholar. Listen, you'd be better off just listening to what I say it means. And multitudes of God's people are saying, okay, okay. That's not what God intended. When the Bible wasn't in the language of the common people, it was William Tyndale who published an English version or uh, published a, 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 a version of the Bible in the, in the language of the people. And Tyndale said to the papal leaders, I'm going to make it so that a boy who drives the plow knows more of the scriptures than you guys. And he did. Because the Bible says the entrance of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Praise the Lord that we have access to his word today. 
So God was trying to combat with this second angel's message the errors that had come in, and he pronounced to his people that Babylon was fallen. Now listen, the people still had the opportunity. You and I still have the opportunity. If we want to see, keep on believing in what Babylon teaches, that's our choice. But God pronounces Babylon as fallen, and that's important for us to understand as we move to Revelation 3. Revelation 3 we are in the seven churches of Revelation, the church of Philadelphia. Revelation 3, verse 7. Revelation 3 and verse 7. Now, if you know your Adventist history, you know that the church of Philadelphia historically was the church of the Advent movement. What does the word Philadelphia mean? Brotherly love. And it was at the height in that church. It comes from the Greek word phileo, brotherly love. And this, this church was... Uh, this, 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 this Revelation describes this church at the height of this unity in Christian love. And it was during that time period, if you look at the Revelation 7 churches, comes right before the church of Laodicea, and it says in verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of who? Of David. He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I'm going to tell you this is one of the most powerful prophecies in Scripture. By God's grace, we're going to see the significance of this tonight. And, and Jesus, as he in, introduces himself to every church, he has a different, he introduces himself differently. In this case, he has the key of David and it's significant. It's not an accident that he uses that introduction. He who opens and no one shuts. Now, when you're talking about opening and shutting and you say you have a key, evidently your key is to a door that you're opening and shutting. And if you're opening and nobody can shut it and you're shutting it and nobody can open it, what's that saying? You're the only one with the key, right? Are you following that? So Jesus is opening and shutting a door here. He who opens and no one shuts, he who shuts and no one opens. Verse 8, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and what? No one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, have not denied my name. Now that's what we're going to zero in on here. Is that portion, this open and shut door. And just as a side note, it's interesting that when Jesus, he introduces himself to this church, just like every one of the seven churches without exception. And then the first thing he says is, I know your works. He doesn't say, I know your faith. Doesn't say that to any one of them. It's the first thing he says. He says, I know your works. As much as we know that we're not saved by our works, our works are an indication of where our standing is with God. Jesus himself, it's the first thing he points out with every church. He says, I know your works. Now he says, I've set before you an open door. I want to look at this key of David. I want you to get the idea of what this is talking about. I want you to go to Isaiah 9 with me. Isaiah 9. And at this point, you may be asking what this has to do with Babylon, but when it's all said and done, it should be clear. Isaiah 9, verse 6. This is very holiday-ish. You'll see what I mean when you get there. Hebrew, or not Hebrews. Isaiah 9, verse 6. The Bible says, Herefore unto us a child is born. Unto us a 
son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the what? Throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This child is born, the government's upon his shoulder, and he is the heir to the throne of David. Now, I could go to a lot of scriptures to, to, to look at that. I'm just going to look at one more here. There's a actually a powerful prophecy in Ezekiel on that. We're going to Luke chapter 1, Gospel of Luke chapter 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 1, verse 32. And the Bible says here, in verse 31, read, start in verse 31 with me, And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him what? The throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So he's going to receive the throne of what? His father David. Go to Daniel 7 with me. And in Daniel 7, we find a judgment scene. And I want you to notice what happens in that judgment scene in Daniel 7, verse 13. Daniel 7 and verse 13, the Bible says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is what kind? an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall what? Never be destroyed. Now, here's the picture. There's only one eternal kingdom, and it's the kingdom of David that God is going to give to his son, Jesus, and he's going to reign over that kingdom forever and ever. David started in that line, and then when the Bible foretells the, the kingdom of David, or, 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 or that lineage, that succession of David, what it's basically saying, when the Bible in Revelation says Jesus has the key of David, it's simply telling us that he's the heir to the throne, he has the key to the throne room, he's the one who has the right to the throne of David in the eternal kingdom. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but that, again, that judgment scene that we see in Daniel 7, that's the one that began in 1844 that among other things, Jesus has entered into the presence of his Father and is there now to receive for himself a kingdom. And he will receive that kingdom before he comes back again. I want you to see it in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. Luke, chapter 19, starting in verse 11. Luke 19, verse 11. The Bible says here, Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear when? Immediately. Okay, so Jesus has a challenge here. He knows the kingdom of God isn't going to be set up now, but his disciples think it is. They think that Messiah has come to set up an earthly kingdom. He hasn't come up to set up an earthly kingdom. Not yet. And so to dispel this error, 
He begins a parable, verse 12, Therefore he said, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself what? A kingdom and to return. So he called ten servants, delivered them to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. Who's the king that's going into the far country? It's Jesus. And what's he going to do there, according to his own word? Receive a kingdom, and then he's going to come back. So between the time Jesus ascended and, and, and comes back again, he's going to be receiving a kingdom. That's going to take place in that, in that judgment context that we know in that most holy place ministry that he's experiencing right now. This is the words of Jesus again. He's going to receive a kingdom and he's going to come back. Notice what it says while he's gone. He gives his servants the ten minas and says, do business Till I come, verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Now time does not permit me to go all the way into this parable only to say that this parable of the minas is also a picture of the investigative judgment. While Jesus is in heaven receiving a kingdom, and here's the major question to be settled in that judgment. Will you have this man to reign over you? Okay, that's what this parable is trying to help us know. Will you have this man to reign over you? The reality is, God's not just going to randomly keep people out of heaven. We all have access to heaven through the grace of Jesus if we'll only let him be the Lord of our lives. But notice that his servant said, we don't want this man to rule over us. Now anyway, here's what we're seeing in these prophetic passages. Jesus has the key of David. That means he's got right into the throne room of David. That throne room where he goes in to receive his kingdom is in the most holy place. That's the judgment scene there in Daniel chapter 7, in Revelation, uh, in, in the book of uh, uh, Luke, the gospel of Luke we're seeing here. He presents himself to the church of Philadelphia, the church of the Advent movement, the church that just has had the message of the 2300 days ending in 1844. And he says, I have a key and I'm going to open a door for you. And it was during the church of Philadelphia that Jesus transitioned in his ministry, same thing we're seeing in Daniel 7, and he opened the door into the most holy place, and he closed the door into the holy place. Now the reality is, if you've been a Seventh-day Adventist for any amount of time, you should know this stuff cold. I'm going to read it to you in the book Early Writings. You can read it in, in uh, Great Controversy. This is what it says in Early Writings, page... 42 and 43, the section is on the open and shut door. That's what it's entitled. Sabbath, March 24, 1849. We had a very sweet and interesting meeting with the brethren at Topsom, Maine. The Holy Ghost was poured out upon us, and I was taken off in spirit to the city of the living God. Then I was shown that the commandments of God and the testament of Jesus Christ relating to the shut door could not be separated and that the time for the commandments of God to shine out with all their importance and for God's people to be tried on the Sabbath truth was when the door was opened in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary where the ark is in which are contained the Ten Commandments. I just, I, I, let me try to explain that a little bit if you don't grasp it. The Bible tells us on the earth that there were two apartments that the priest ministered in. The Bible tells us all that was typical. The priests and the blood of lambs and bulls and goats wasn't doing anything but teaching a lesson. Pointing forward to the time when Jesus would actually go into a real temple, not made with hands, 
That's what it tells us in Hebrews chapter 8, 1 through 5. It says if Jesus were on the earth, he couldn't be a priest. He had to go into the temple in heaven, the temple not made with hands. And when he entered into that temple, that temple also, as the great model, as the great uh, uh, master, uh, uh, what am I going to say here? Reality. Uh, the reality, thank you, had two apartments in it as well, the holy place and the most holy place, basically outlining two phases of Christ's ministry as priest. The first phase of his ministry that continued up until 1844 was primarily a phase, and you've got to keep in mind that what Jesus is doing in heaven for his people can only go so far and so fast as his people are able to go on the earth. And as much as Jesus in heaven would have liked to take them right into the most holy place throne room experience, during that period of dark ages, man's knowledge as truth was so limited that Jesus was simply trying to work through that dynamic to bring salvation and forgiveness and justification to his people. But it wasn't the time for the cleansing in preparation for his second coming. It was in 1844 that Jesus' ministry shifted, that the that the, that the focus shifted, that the truth shifted, and when the door was opened in the most holy place, all that's saying is that the time came for more light to be revealed. In a very little, literal way, when you go into the most holy place, and which is what figuratively his people did by faith in 1844, you find in there, oh, look, here's the Ark of the Covenant. And what do you know about the Ark of the Covenant? What's inside? Whoa, the Ten Commandments that we've been teaching have been done away and nailed to the cross for some time now, and here they are, right in the, the Ark of the Covenant. And if there's an Ark of the Covenant in the temple in heaven, and there's a Ten Commandment law in the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of heaven, they must still be important. And if they're still important, then the Sabbath of the Fourth Commandment must still be important. And the point that Ellen White is making here in early writings is, when Jesus entered into that phase of ministry, he opened up to view of God's people the light they hadn't seen on the commandments, the law of God, the testimony of Jesus, and the Sabbath commandment. And so for the first time, an understanding comes to God's people that they didn't have prior to that. When Jesus' ministry changed, new light came to his people. So it says, and I'll read again, then I was shown that the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus relating to the shut door could not be separated and that the time for the commandments of God to shine out with all their importance and for God's people to be tried on the Sabbath truth when the door was opened in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary where the ark is in which are contained the Ten Commandments. The door was not opened until the mediation of Jesus was finished in the holy place of the sanctuary in 1844. Then Jesus rose up and shut the door of the holy place and opened the door into the most holy and passed within the second veil where he now stands by the ark and where the faith of Israel now reaches. I saw that Jesus had shut the door of the holy place and no man can open it. Now I'll flesh this out for you in just a minute. He shut the door in the holy place and no man can open it and that he had opened the door into the most holy and no man can shut it. And that since Jesus has opened the door into the most holy place, which contains the ark, the commandments have been shining out to God's people, and they are being tested on the Sabbath question. Do you get that? In other words, the door's been opened, and now you're seeing what you didn't see before, and because of that, now you're being tested on it. 
You didn't know about the Sabbath commandment before, but now you know about it. And guess what? Acts 17.30, the times of our ignorance, God winks at. But now that we know the truth, he commands us to repent. When God shows light to you and me, does he expect us to follow it? Is it safe once he shows it to us not to follow it? No. And so what this is telling us is the time came in earth's history where it was time to reveal to God's people this issue of the importance of the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus and the Sabbath. And now the light is shining on the people. And they are being tested on the Sabbath question. I saw that the present test on the Sabbath could not come until the mediation of Jesus in the holy place was finished and he had passed within the second veil because the light hadn't come yet. Therefore, Christians who fell asleep before the door was opened into the most holy, when the midnight cry was finished at the seventh month, 1844, and who had not kept the true Sabbath, now rest in hope, for they had not the light and the test on the Sabbath, which we now have since the door was opened. And that could be said broader, that if a person doesn't have light on something, they're not judged on what they don't have light on. But if they do have light on it, what? It's time to follow it. Now, here's the significance of this open and shut door. In 1844, God opened up to the Christian world an understanding of the, his commandments and the Sabbath that he expects people to come into. The Lord is moving forward. Truth is moving forward. And what Jesus did then was effectively shut the door on any experience that would remain in ignorance to the law of God. Up until that time, hey, you know what? You didn't have to know about the Sabbath, and it was okay. But the time came when the light moved forward, and God expected his people, not just the Adventist people, to move with the light. God is not able, and listen to me carefully, God is not able to give any Christian an experience in spiritual things who willfully refuses to follow in the light God's given. Did you hear what I said? Willfully refuses. Now, there are people who ignorantly refuse things. But the importance for us to understand is that as God opens up to our view new light and truth, we're expected to follow it. We're not allowed to say, well, you know, I kind of don't like that light and truth because if I have to follow that, that's going to be kind of hard for me. Because if I, you know, I see the Sabbath thing, but if I, if, I, if I do that, I might be in trouble with my wife or my husband. I might have a problem with my job. And so I'm just going to stay right here because I have a rich experience in my church that I've been in for 25 years, and mom and dad were in and grandma and grandpa were in. So I'm just going to stay in this experience, and I'm just going to kind of camp out here, and I think it'll be good. And what the Bible's telling us is, no, Babylon has fallen. In other words, that system of, that you understood as truth isn't true. And God says, now I've exposed the error to you and you're expected to walk in the light. No longer can you enjoy living in darkness. I relate it to my own experience. Before I became a Christian, there were a lot of things I did ignorantly. I lived contrary to God in many ways ignorantly. Even after I became a Christian, there were things I did because I didn't know any better. But then God showed me the truth. Have you ever had God show you truth on something and you have resisted following it? You said, no, I just, I'm, not, I'm not ready for that. I'm not going to follow that. I'm just going to keep on going the way I was before I ever heard that truth. Have you ever done that? It's miserable, isn't it? Because once you know it's true, you just can't go back as if you didn't know it, right? 
the light has come and now you've got to move with the light. You just can't go back to that experience because the door is shut. You understand? When the prophecy is saying Jesus shut that door, what he's saying is he's not expecting his people to keep retrograding backwards and backwards and backwards in their experience. He expects us to go forward and forward and forward in our experience. Are you with me so far? Now, in light of that, I'm going to read to you one of the most powerful visions in this book. Page 54, it's called The End of the 2300 Days. I want you to listen to what happens here. Now, it's describing this transition from the one apartment to the other apartment in Jesus' ministry. February 1845, I saw a throne, and on it sat the Father and the Son. I gazed on Jesus' countenance and admired his lovely person, the Father's person I could not behold, for a cloud of glorious light covered him. It goes on to say, Bowed before the throne, I saw the Advent people, the church, and the world. I saw two companies... One bowed down before the throne, deeply interested, while the other stood uninterested and careless. Those who were bowed... Now, is it possible to bow before the throne of God and be uninterested and careless? Is it possible to sit in a meeting like this and be interested and careless in spiritual things? It sure is. Two companies. Those who were bowed down before the throne would offer up their prayers and look to Jesus, and then he would look to his Father and appear to be pleading with him. A light would come from the Father to the Son and from the Son to the praying company. Then I saw an exceeding bright light come from the Father to the Son, and from the Son it waved over the people before the throne. But few would receive this great light. Many came out from under it and immediately resisted it. Others were careless and did not cherish the light, and it moved off from them. Now, you're going to see in a moment that this light was the light that was telling them that the ministry was about to shift into the most holy place. But some didn't like that. Okay? So you got the two companies. Now, listen. Some cherished the light and went and bowed down with a little praying company. This company all received the light and rejoiced in it, and their countenances shone with glory. Now, listen carefully. I saw the Father rise from the throne... And in a flaming chariot, go into the Holy of Holies within the veil and sit down. Then Jesus rose up from the throne. And the most of those who were bowed down arose with him. I did not see one ray of light pass from Jesus to the careless multitude after he arose, and they were left in perfect darkness. So Jesus is moving on. The Father is moving on from holy place ministry to most holy place. New light is coming to the people. He tells his people, sheds the light upon them, and most of them here, she sees gathered, get up, and they follow him, but some of them don't care to follow. They want to stay where they are, and they're left in darkness. Those who arose when Jesus did kept their eyes fixed on him as he left the throne and led them out a little way. You know, the titles look up. We're looking up to the Lord, and it's just so cliché. Friends, we're not looking up to the Lord at all if we're not following where he leads us in the truth. You can't sit in the first apartment and say, well, I'm looking up to Jesus and I'm just basking in. No, you're not basking in anything from Jesus if you're not following where he's leading you. And you say, but nah, I don't believe that because that's not what I'm feeling. Listen, those who arose went when Jesus did, kept their eyes fixed on him as he left the throne and led them out a little way. Then he raised his right arm and we heard his lovely voice saying, wait here, I am going to my father to receive the kingdom. Keep your garments spotless and in a little while I will return from the wedding and receive you to myself. 
Then a cloudy chariot with wheels like flaming fire surrounded by angels came to where Jesus was. He stepped into the chariot and was born into the holiest where the Father sat. There I beheld Jesus, a great high priest, standing before the Father. On the hem of his garment was a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate. Those who rose up with Jesus would send up their faith to him in the holiest and would pray, My Father, give us thy spirit. Then Jesus would breathe upon them the Holy Ghost, and in that breath was light, power, and much love, joy, and peace. Now follow. I turned to look at the company who were still bowed before the throne. They did not know that Jesus had left it. Satan appeared to be by the throne trying to carry on the work of God. I saw them look up to the throne and pray, Father, give us thy spirit. Satan would breathe, then breathe upon them an unholy influence, and in it there was light and much power, but no sweet love, joy, and peace. Now, I've had some people comment on this and say, well, you know, my experience is full of love. Let me just make something plain tonight. A lot of us today are defining love, God's love, by what we think love is and let, instead of letting God define what love is by who he is. And a lot of our love is mere emotionalism. The same love that a lot of people have for God is a love that won't keep them in a marriage for more than three or four years. Don't tell me that's love. Love is a principle, and it's a divine principle. It says that the devil breathed this, this light and power. What do you think that equates to in an experience? Here, here's this group, and Jesus has moved on. Others have followed him in advanced truth. But there are those who said, I don't want to go with that. I don't want to follow that truth. I'm going to stay in my experience just the way, you know, give me that old-time religion. It was good enough for mother and father. It's good enough for me. So I'm going to stay here, and I'm going to pray. And the devil breathes on them an influence, and there's light and power. What does that equate to, do you think, in that person's experience? It's not the Holy Spirit. Uh, they think it is why what do you think they're feeling I just gave it away didn't I there's a lot of feeling there there's a lot of emotion there there's a lot of excitement there but there's no truth there there's no committed life to God there's no consecration there there was no love joy and peace there Satan's object was to keep them deceived and draw back and deceive God's children and so you, here you have these two companies, one moving forward in the light because the door has been opened. Some are staying there where the door has been shut, and they're seeking to gain a new experience, a revitalized experience with that shut door, but they can't. But guess what? The devil doesn't want them to know they've got to move on, so he shows up, and he gives them a false experience. He gives them a false revival. The power of the Holy Spirit is gone from their life, so he seeks to replace the genuine Holy Spirit with strange fire by bringing a false revival of emotion and excitement instead of truth. Are you hearing what I'm saying so far? Now, here's, here's something fascinating. I'm going to tack one thing onto this. This is early writings, which was supposed to be Ellen White's earliest writings. And, uh, in fact, she's been criticized by this. The critics get on this because... There's another version of this vision that was earlier. The problem was when this book was put together, we were a new church. We didn't have a white estate with a big uh, uh, vault and, and books and, and, and filing cabinets and what have you. And Ellen White had to send around to our people. I mean, the way we did books back then. And we'd pass them out and they, they were practically, I mean, you'd do a few hundred and send them out. 
And so she went around, she wrote around in our papers and asked our people, give me the copies you have of the earliest um, renditions of these visions. And this is the one she got. But there was one that was found later, and it's printed and it's accessible. One of those, you know, critics call it the suppressed writings. Real suppressed, it's available just about anywhere. <laughs> yeah, that's how I got it. But there's, a, there's an element, there, there are just a couple other lines in that version of this vision that I want you to hear. That's just incredible. Now you've got the two companies, right? And you've got the first company who follows Jesus with the truth. And you've got the other company who bows down before the throne in the holy place, seeking to have uh, the same experience without following the truth. Are you with me so far? So I'm going to read how, how, how the, the um, vision reads in that particular account. Then I beheld Jesus, a great high priest, standing before the Father on the hem of his garment was a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate. I just read that. Then Jesus showed me the difference or showed me the difference between faith and feeling. Then Jesus showed me the difference between faith and feeling. Those who rose up with Jesus would send their faith up to him in the holiest and they say, Father, give us thy spirit and Jesus would breathe on them. I turned to look at the other company, still bowed before the throne. They didn't know Jesus had left it. Satan appeared to be by the throne, trying to carry on the work of God. I saw them look up to the throne and pray, Father, give us thy spirit, and Satan would breathe upon them an unholy influence, and in it was much light and power, but no sweet love, joy, and peace. Jesus showed me the difference between faith and feeling. Here are the people of faith. But this other company, it's about feeling. It's not a faith experience. Now, here's the kicker. Then she says... Satan's object was to deceive, was to keep them deceived, and to draw back and deceive God's children. And now listen, I saw one after another leave the company who were praying to Jesus in the holiest and go back and join those before the throne. And they at once received the unholy influence of Satan. Prophecy fulfilled. What is this today? This is the Seventh-day Adventist who say, you know, I just, I always feel so guilty and everything else, and I want to come back and I want to feel better. I want to talk just justification only. don't want to talk sanctification. I'm going to come back, and I'm going to have this experience here, and woo, I have this new experience in Jesus. Guess what? Light and power, no love, joy, and peace. It's a deception. And it's a deception that was the Lord lined out for us way back then. The door is shut. You can't go back into an experience. I mean, Seventh-day Adventists, God forbid, we should have been in the kingdom by now. Now we're trying to backpedal and back, back, back up in our experience, and that door is shut. And the only experience we're going to have that way is a false one, is a false one. So the Lord tells us that Babylon is fallen. Listen, my friends. In fact, here's an, here's an awesome statement in the book, Early Writings, page 260. Ellen White says, I saw that as the Jews crucified Jesus, now she compares these messages, so the nominal churches had crucified these messages, and therefore they have no knowledge of the way into the most holy and cannot be benefited by the intercession of Jesus there. Listen carefully. Like the Jews who offered their useless sacrifices, they offer up their useless prayers to the apartment which Jesus has left. You understand what it's saying there? In other words, the Jews offered their sacrifices, and before Jesus died on the cross, that was perfectly, not only was it acceptable, it was required of them. But once Jesus died on the cross, what did it mean to go and offer an animal sacrifice? They were to be redirected from the, 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 the animal lamb to the living lamb of God. 
and to continue to worship and say, you know, I just don't want to accept the living Lamb of God yet. I'm not, I'm not cool with that. I'm just going to keep on going with the temple services. Were they, were they able to maintain our living experience, living connection with God while they continued on in rejection of the Messiah? Yes or no? And so the same Jesus who transitioned in, in, in as sacrifice now moves to, to the position of high priest as he transitioned onward. Was it possible for God's people to have the same kind of experience as they tried to pray to him in the holy place when he moved to the next phase of his ministry? No. Is it possible for us to have the same experience when God tries to show us light and we don't follow the light? It isn't. I want to look at one more thing with you in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 24. And I want you to see a description as we tie this in to our Babylon is fallen message. Matthew 24, starting in verse 45. And Jesus is describing the time just before his coming. Matthew 24, verse 45. The question is asked, who then is a faithful and wise what? Servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season. Whose household is it? It's the Lord's household. Who would the servant be? A person who professes to follow the Lord of the household, right? Who is the faithful and wise servant? It's the one who gives food in due season. Blessed, verse 46, is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Verse 47, assuredly I say to you, I will make him ruler over all his goods, or he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that, what? Evil servant. Now it's a servant, so it's somebody who professes to be a follower, right? But it's an evil servant. Why? If that evil servant says where? In his heart. Did he say it out loud? Uh-uh. says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming, and notice, begins to beat his fellow servants, and to what? Eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, at an hour that he is not aware of, and will cut him in two, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It says right there before Jesus coming again, coming, there will be two groups of people, those who are faithful servants, those who are evil servants. The evil servants, notice, are saying in their heart, my Lord delays his coming, and they begin to beat their fellow servants, which are the ones who are saying the Lord's coming soon, right? The meet and do season, because if you contrast, if the evil one is saying the Lord delays his coming, what are the faithful ones saying? What's the meet and do season? He is coming, he's coming soon. The evil ones begin to beat the fellow servants, and notice, then they begin to eat and drink with the drunkards. Now, who are the drunkards prophetically? Those who are drunk with the wine of Babylon. Those who are drunk on the false doctrines of Babylon. And God is outlining the temptation, the danger of God's people at the end of time because the message is so unpopular to go and spend more of their time mingling with those who are drunk with the wine of Babylon than those who believe the truth. There was a pastor not too long ago that wrote an article in uh, one of the Adventist ministry magazines on best practices, and it talked about how um, some people think you shouldn't be reading a lot of non-Adventist material and how how narrow-minded that was. And in essence, this pastor said that those who, those who um, 
didn't like to read broadly in their, you know, in their reading on theological things, didn't like to read non-Adventist material, that that individual just was insecure in their faith. And that's why they wouldn't read outside the Adventist church. Now, I'll tell you something, a couple things. First of all, if I refuse to dig through the dumpster for food, is it because my palate is insecure? I'm insecure in my palate? Or could it perhaps be that I know where better food is? Are you hearing what I'm saying? Now, I do not want to try to be critical of other faiths, but my friends, I read non-Adventist literature, but I don't spend a lot of time there. And my bigger concern, I've had leaders in my church, I've had elders in my church get on this bandwagon and say, you know, we need to be reading broadly in these things. And uh, my concern is this, not that they're reading non-Adventist material, but the fact of the matter is most of them are not hardly reading any Adventist material, let alone scripture. There are more Christians today who spend time in chicken soup for the soul books than the Bible. And I wish that was a joke, but it's not. We talk about devotional time. You know what devotional time is? It's some book that has a text in it and a paragraph. What happened to having devotional time in the devotional book, in the Word of God? And I'm reading half the time among our own people. There are books that are published by people that are drunk with the wine of Babylon, not just spiritually drunk. I was telling a couple guys earlier this evening, and I don't know if you've heard this in the news, Max Lucado came out, 2012, and said that he's always loved beer, and he got, let me, I'm gonna read it to you, it's from Christianity Today. I want you to hear this. He starts out by saying, I like beer, I always have. Ever since my, old high, my high school buddy and I drank ourselves sick with a case of quartz, I have liked beer. I like the way it washes down a piece of pizza and mutes the spice of enchiladas, etc., etc. And he liked it too much, and he goes and says he swore it off when he was 21 years old. And he figured he'd be better off not using it. But then he says this, and then a few years back, something resurrected my cravings. Too many commercials, too many baseball games... I don't know, quite likely it was just thirst. The South Texas heat can, range like a can rage like a range fire. And at some point I reached for a can of brew instead of a can of soda. And as quick as you can pop the top, I was a beer fan again. A once in a while, then once a week, then once a day beer fan. I kept myself... I kept my preference to myself, no beer at home, lest my daughters think less of me, no beer in public, who knows who might see me, none at home, none in public, which left only one option, convenience store parking lots. For about a week, I was that guy in the car drinking out of the brown paper bag. Now listen to me. The man came clean. I praise the Lord for that. I'm not trying to criticize him, but I'm going to ask you a question. I know a whole lot of Adventists and Adventist ministers spent a lot of time in Max Lucado. Let me ask you what quality of food they were getting while that man was writing under the influence. While he was harboring that sin in his heart, what's the quality of truth? Eating and drinking with the drunkards, literally. Saints, we're living in the last days. Babylon is fallen. And God's people, we spend so much time around Babylonian things, we can't think straight. That's what it means to be drunk with the wine of Babylon. God is not expecting us to go back into a, ba a backwards holy place experience. He wants us to keep moving forward. We're not going to keep moving forward while we continue in the wine of Babylon. And I'm going to tell you, I would recommend 
that you don't spend a whole lot of time. I already told you, I read non-Adventist material. But saints, we are not familiar with our message. Half, I, 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 I guarantee that a number of you have had a challenge when I've gotten into prophetic subjects here because we just don't study them anymore. I know that because I teach all over the place. I debate. Sometimes I just wonder if I should even preach them anymore because it takes so long to get people up to speed on them. You, and if I can make a point, let me make this one. I'm hoping that this experience here isn't all the spirituality you get. There are a lot of churches. I know a lot of pastors. They've got this idea. They're like 20 minutes, man. You give a 20-minute sermon, you can't give your sermon in 20 minutes, you shouldn't be given a sermon. I know a pastor right near me who says that. I tell him, listen, back in the day, the saints were studying their Bibles every day. Now this is all they get all week, and I'm going to take advantage of it. I've got to stand before God, and I've got to answer before God. But, but the reality is, any time I give here is not going to be, it's not going to be enough. We've got to feed ourselves from the Word of God. And when the Lord gives this warning message, Babylon has fallen, He's trying to help. Look, we don't have to listen to Him. We can continue on with Babylon. And we'll meet our sure end. That God would warn us off of that ground and say, it's time to take your stand on the side of truth. Come out of that kind of stuff. Listen to this, this, listen to this amazing statement. I mean, I run into this as a pastor with other pastors all the time. And maybe some of you are in that role here, in that mode, or maybe you've, uh, you're in seminary or I don't know what. And they're, they're of this mindset that I've got to read all of these theological things so I can be in touch. This is what the Lord tells us. Counsels to parents, teachers, and students, page 380. As a preparation for Christian work, many think it essential to acquire an extensive knowledge of historical and theological writings. Got to read Origen, got to read the Church Fathers, got to read all of this other stuff. They suppose that this knowledge will be an aid to them in teaching the gospel. Where do you find Jesus quoting the Greek philosophers to get a little added? Ah, that's good. But their laborious study of the opinions of men tends to the enfeebling of their ministry rather than to its strengthening. And if I might just be frank with you, that's what most of you are dealing with with your pastors today. As I see libraries filled with ponderous volumes of historical and theological lore, she calls it, I ask, I think she says, why spend money for that which is not bread? To a large degree, theology as studied and taught is but a record of human speculation, serving only to, quote, counsel by words without knowledge, Job 38.2. Too often, the motive in accumulating these many books is not so much a desire to obtain food for mind and soul as it is an ambition to become acquainted with philosophers and theologians, a desire to present Christianity to the people in learned terms and propositions. Not all of the books written can serve the purpose of a holy life. Learn of me, said the great teacher. Take my yoke upon you. Learn my meekness and lowliness. Your intellectual pride will not aid you in communicating with souls that are perishing for want of the bread of life. In your study of these books, you are allowing them to take the place of the practical lessons you should be learning from Christ. With the results of this study, the people are not fed. Very little of the research which is so weary to the mind furnishes that which will help one to be a successful laborer for souls. 
My friends, Babylon is fallen. Come out of her, is what the Lord says. Come out of her. Come out of these practices, these half-hearted, two-sided, one foot in the fallen churches and one foot in the remnant church, and we're embarrassed to say too much because we don't want the fallen churches to think that we're bigoted, and so we don't say anything. And the warning God's entrusted us to give, we refuse to give. And then when it comes down to the final judgment and they're lost, they're going to look at us and say, why didn't you say something? If I would have been you, I would have said something to me. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Friends, tonight God is calling you and me to come out, clean out of Babylon. Come out of Babylonian practices and thoughts. Come out of trying to maintain a spiritual experience while we drop anchor and refuse to follow in the light that the Lord is calling us forward into. I'll say similarly to what I said this morning. Some of you are wrestling tonight, and there are some of you new here tonight. You weren't here this morning. Some of you are wrestling tonight with things that the Lord has called you to do in your lives. You know where he's calling you. You know where the light is leading. You know that it's the truth of God, but you've dug your heels in. And you said, no, 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 that, it's going to cost me too much to go there. May I remind you tonight what it cost Jesus to come here? Have we forgotten? Have we forgotten Gethsemane? Have we forgotten the Son of God in the garden? Have we forgotten the Son of God knelt down on the cold, hard ground where his Father was separating himself from the Son? As the Son voluntarily was bearing the guilt and the weight of your sin and mine. Have we forgotten the Son of God digging His fingers into the cold, hard ground as if somehow that would help to keep Him from being drawn further from His Father? Have we forgotten the blood that came from His pores in anguish as He was bearing the weight of your sin and mine while we're saying, it's, it costs me too much? Have we forgotten the cry from His lips? Father, if there's any way, take this cup. If there's any way I can avoid drinking it, take it, take it. I don't want to drink it. Have we forgotten three times? He pled and prayed that prayer to his father. And friends, have we forgotten that final decision when, as it says in Desire of Ages, he saw where we would be headed without that sacrifice? And it says, his decision was made. I will save man at any cost to myself. I will save you, Jesus said, at any cost to myself. How much is it costing you again? To follow Jesus with your whole heart. He longs to be with you and for you to be with him in his kingdom. Now, don't you want to be there? Is there anything in your life more important than being there with Jesus? How many of you want to say with me tonight, Jesus, whatever it takes, save me in your kingdom. I want to stand for you. I want to come out and take my stand for your truth. Is that your desire tonight? Stand with me if it is. And let's bow our heads in prayer together. Father in heaven, 
Father, tonight I pray, as you have spoken through clay, that beyond my weaknesses, your Holy Spirit would find his way to each heart and mind tonight and help us to see the precious privilege of knowing truth and following truth and moving forward that we would see the futility of trying to go backward in our experience or try to remain in one place instead of following where you lead. Lord, tonight the message of Scripture comes home to our hearts and our minds. Babylon is fallen. You've exposed the system of error so that we can come clear of it and be saved, so that we can enter into the experience that you long to give us, so that you can work more mightily and powerfully in our lives. Father, forgive us for too often forgetting the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus, in our behalf. Father, for forgetting the sacrifice that you made in giving your only begotten Son because you so loved the world. Tonight, Father, take every excuse from our lips and help us to humble our hearts before you and say, Father, thy will be done in my life. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.